continuing in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 18. Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 18. We'll be reading until verse 35. So I'll check you quickly. Verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many peoples of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive the sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. That is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is, at, is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for them, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Praise be to God. You may be seated. So we got a quite a bit of text we're going through this morning. The reason I found it necessary for us to talk about such a massive portion of text is because this is coming out the piggyback of a massive section regarding faith. A massive section regarding faith. Jesus talks about what faith is like. He talks about what having a foundation is like. The one that can withstand that which comes against them in storms and floods. A foundation that when it comes against the house, it stands and while the other is consumed. We see moments of faith of a centurion and his servant. Whenever he said, you merely just speak, and this will happen. Therefore, speak. And then the raising of a widow's son. Her only son. The only one to whom who could be able to provide for her while she lived out the rest of this life, she had just lost. Jesus, it says that he had compassion on her. He went and raised her son. 
This is wonderful news as it is completely surrounded by the showcase of the Old Testament that this exact same situation happened both in the life of Elisha and of Elijah. That both of these specific stories were in reference to that Christ or God had found within Israel none who had faith except for those who were outside of Israel. That the Elijah was the same situation of raising a widow's son. But also, that in uh, Elisha's situation, Naaman, being the Syrian army commander who had been stricken with leprosy, went into Israel having simply heard from a slave girl that cleansing and wholeness was found. And so he went and obeyed and sought Elisha. Elisha gave him some instructions and he was like, that's foolish. There's better rivers elsewhere. Why, would I, I mean, why can't I just cleanse myself in one of those rivers? But after some grumbling, he abided by what Elisha had said, and he was removed of his leprosy. Now during that time, none of Israel had their leprosy removed, except for this Syrian army commander. Why? Because he heard and believed and obeyed. He heard, believed, and obeyed. The people of Israel at that time had the entirety of the word of God, and yet they were constantly being led astray by clever words, by sophos. By fears of things that are going to come against them. Oh no, Assyria is coming. Let's make deals with Egypt to protect ourselves. Let's give some of the gold from our very temple to the king of Assyria because Israel is coming against Judah. They constantly made these ways of trying to make deals to try to figure out how to get out of a situation. An Assyrian army commander who had a bad situation going on simply heard that healing was found, abided, and went and sought it out by faith. He went and did and obeyed. So it's a big situation. We're coming on the tail end of Jesus talking all about faith. And then all of a sudden, again, there's a changing gear is what some may think. That we go from these wonderful works of Jesus to a change of gears about John. Well, I'm going to argue that all of this stays together. All of this stays together. Because we heard a story of a, a centurion commander, a centurion, who had their servant healed simply by having faith that Jesus was able to do it. And then we saw the raising of the widow's son in, in a village that was kind of far off from Jerusalem. We're going to see how John's struggle in this moment of weakness is going to be simply tied together. It's going to be all compact together in the situation that we've been in. Some of John the Baptist's disciples were sent by John to inquire of Jesus in the midst of the weakness of faith and doubt. You would think, out of everybody, John the Baptist surely wouldn't be asking this question. I mean, out of everybody, wasn't this Jesus' cousin? Wasn't he filled with the Holy Spirit before even being born? But nonetheless, a moment of weakness happened. That John the Baptist himself, when facing a dire situation, had a moment of weakness and doubt and sent his disciples asking. We're going to find out here in a moment why he was in this position. John, who was called to prepare the way. John, the cousin of Jesus. John, the one who leapt in the womb upon being in Jesus' presence. We've been through all that in Luke. John, the one who was baptizing with water for repentance. John, who spoke about his unworthiness to untie Jesus' sandals. John, who witnessed that Jesus' baptism, the voice of heaven's 
uh, voice from heaven regarding Jesus. You'd think out of everybody, this guy would just be on lock. That he would have no wavering in his faith. But there is a wonderful, beautiful message found within Jesus' words that we're going to find out today. That even John the Baptist, who has seen, heard, and done incredible things, can still waver in his faith. Which is why it's beautiful that Jesus said that none greater than John, but the least will be even greater than him. Why? John has seen, John has participated, he's done things, he's observed, he's witnessed, and yet even he can waver in his faith. But somebody who has not seen, has not done, who simply hears the gospel, believes in the message of the gospel, will be even greater than John. Why? Because even John wavered in his faith a little bit, having done all these things. So we too can go to the one and be confirmed and affirmed by Christ. And we're going to find out what that looks like in our life. Whenever we have those moments of weakness and doubt, whenever we see and observe things in our life, what we, what we can actually do about it. Because we get to see it here in a very strong way. So John is now wondering in the face of his own death... Whether or not Jesus is the one they have been waiting for. Because if you notice at the very beginning, he, they sit there and said that once they had told John about all the things that Jesus was doing. So what stories did uh, John hear? Centurion healing. A raising of a widow's son outside of Jerusalem. And where is John right now? He's in prison. He is also the cousin of Jesus. So you're like, wait a second, wait, wait, let me get this right. He's healing lepers, the unclean. He's raising the dead. He's healing the servant of centurion. But what about me? What about me? All these people are receiving things, but what about me? I'm his cousin. I'm the one who's called to prepare the way. I had a huge calling on my life, and here I am. What about me? Are you the one who's to come, or we should look for another? Are you going to come free me from this, or should we look for another? Are you the one that if I actually go to death, that is actually going to deliver me into the kingdom of God for eternity, like it says? Are you actually going to be that guy, or should we look for another? Am I going to face death in vain? John is in the midst of having a very tough time. If anyone could walk with assurance of Jesus, it would be John, right? But even John the Baptist, who bore witness to many things regarding Jesus and preached repentance, could have moments of doubt when faced with hardship. So the question we're going to be asking this morning is this. The question we're asking this morning is this. Is does doubt have its place in faith? Does doubt have its place in faith? So we're going to dive into the text. But before we do that, I need to define the difference between good doubt and bad doubt. There's such a thing as good doubt versus bad doubt. There is a measure by which we can understand that if the feeling of doubting in your life could come across to you as some sense of, oh no, I'm losing my faith, that's not what it is. We're going to find out what the definition of doubt is and what the scriptures say in regard to this doubt. First, we're going to find it in James 1. Because immediately, I'm sure many of you are like, Freddie, it says not to doubt. In several places. James especially. You're right. And we're going to talk about it. Verse, uh, starting in verse 5. James 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, 
Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. If you can go back to verse, verse 5 for me. Now, there's a couple of interesting words in here. Because, yet again, I don't know about you guys, but I absolutely love the Greek. The Greek brings a lot more understanding and meaning in regards to this. Because on the outset... English, right off the get-go, is like, well, does that mean I'm not allowed to ask any questions? I'm supposed to just blind them? No, no, no. Let's dive into it. Let's find out. If any of you lacks wisdom, now that word wisdom in Greek is Sophia. It's Sophia. It's a beautiful word, and we're going to get around to it because it's used quite a bit. Sophia. It's where we get a word like philosophy, so philo, love, Sophia. Wisdom, love of wisdom. A philosopher is a lover of wisdom. It is earnest and desirable ambition to understand for the sake of growth and progress. It is somebody who needs to understand how to grow. It, it's lacking. Whoever lacks in it, it needs to be asked of them. So it means there's a sense of progress and need of growth. That there is a place to which you are standing that you need to move farther. And that you're seeking it so that way you can be built up and moving forward. James makes the argument that the one who desires for Sophia, wisdom, from God, he will provide it generously. That doesn't seem like a negative thing. That you're like, Lord, I don't understand what's going on. I don't understand the word. I don't understand this portion, that portion. Help me out. Help me out. Help me out. That's a beautiful thing. I don't understand how this fits together. Excellent. Seek it. We'll talk about it here in a little bit. But there is a bad doubting. There is a bad doubting. Now the word doubt is, a, is two words in Greek. The word doubt in Greek is diakrino. Diakrino. It's to waver or to separate one from another or to judge or to distinguish. Now it's made up of two words, dia and krino. Dia, where we get the word divided, diagram, Division, diagonal, split. In crino is the word uh, for judgment. Somebody who is doubting is split in their judgment. They have not assurance of any particular thing. They're split in their judgment and they, they're like, all right, I can go either way with this. Doubt is the pairing up of these two words. The root word crino is meaning to judge or to pass judgment. Dia being mean between or divided plus crino equals judgment gives off the idea yeah I don't know about that you could have something presented to your face or read something in the scriptures and go eh I don't know about that eh I don't know about that we saw this and we'll continue to see this as we go through Luke over and over again when Jesus will do something and the Pharisees will come up and be like oh, you're doing by the powers of hell's boat um, you broke the Sabbath laws. Um, you broke the blah, blah, blah. You did this, you did that. I don't know about that. I don't know about that. I don't know about that. Diacrino is this person who's divided. 
and will choose which way he wants to go based upon his own desires. Which is why it's very interesting if we continue in the text where it says that. Uh, let's go to verse 6. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Back and forth. Verse 7. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, because he's what? Double-minded. I don't know about that. Double-minded. His judgment is split. The doubter, in this case, is not seeking for more of God, but placing God on trial as they judge him for determination of wisdom. Rather than seeking the Lord saying, help me, that I may grow and understand more, they're like, prove yourself. Prove yourself. Doubt, as James defines it, is not one who desires, uh, whose desires is to engage more in the wisdom and knowledge of God, but one who holds themselves as the determining or being the judge of what wisdom is for themselves. They determine for themselves what is good. They determine for themselves as a judgment. God, you're on trial, and I will prove to myself whether or not you're real or not. You've probably heard this. We're going to talk about it. You know what, God, if you will just do this, then I'll believe. If you have a way to work out this thing in my life, then, then I'll believe you're real. If not, I don't believe in you. You don't exist. God is not found in the cosmos, therefore he must not exist. God is not found in DNA, therefore he must not exist. We have hair on our heads. We stand upright, so it's kind of close to monkeys, therefore God doesn't exist. <laughs> there is stuff that, in, there's suffering in our world, therefore God doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Diacrino. It's either my way, or the way that I see it, or it's not. God either exists and has and does what he says he will, and is who he says he is, based on my determination, or he's not, and therefore he doesn't exist. That's diacrino, double-minded. We got an example of good doubt found in Mark chapter 9. So what does good doubt look like? Mark chapter 9. Listen to this situation. And when they came to the disciples, being a crowd, they saw a great crowd around them, the scribes arguing with them. So obviously, in typical Israeli fashion, they're arguing amongst themselves. And immediately all the crowd, it happens a lot, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him, being Jesus. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. Alright, so we've got a demon-possessed child situation going on. We've got something going on here. Verse 18, And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. <gasps> How about that? Wait a second. Didn't Jesus give his disciples the power to do all this? Have the authority over the spirits and do all this, right? But they couldn't do it. Why? All right, let's continue on. And he said, and he answered them, Jesus, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming 
at the mount. And Jesus asked his father, how long has, he been, has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. This is something that seeks his life. Not just simply, hey, this is a pretty bad situation for him, or, you know, he's got kind of a thing going on, or they're not looking at some kid that's got ADHD and be like, oh, evil spirit. No, this is like a legitimate, actual possession seeking the destruction of this child. Verse 22, and it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him, but if you can do anything, look, look, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Okay. There's the doubt. There's that little bit of, okay, if you can. What's, watch how Jesus responds. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. So he kind of pushes back on the guy a little bit. What do you mean, if you can? Do you believe that I can do what I said I was going to do? Do you actually believe that my disciples, whom you brought your child to, had the ability to do this very thing? Didn't you not have faith with them? Now you got some doubt going on. If you can. All things are possible for one who believes. Verse 24. Immediately, the father of the child cried out. This is what he said. I believe. Help my unbelief. That is good doubt. I don't understand everything, Lord. I don't understand why my child has to deal with this in the first place. I don't understand how I'm supposed to help him at all. It's hard for me to watch my own child try to kill himself because of this oppression. This demon that has seized him seeks to cast him into the water and into the fire. I don't know what to do. Help my unbelief. What does Jesus do? When Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mutant deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead! <laughs> the situation's not looking up, according to the crowd. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast him out? All right. Here we go. Wonderful question by the disciples. Didn't you give us the ability to do this? So why couldn't we do it? What did Jesus say? This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, a lot of people take this verse to mean exactly that, like literal. Of course it is. But Jesus doesn't waste words. He didn't say, oh, you just need, you didn't pray enough, you didn't pray, you know, you should have prayed more, this, that, or the other. This type of thing that was happening, you can't just go with this idea that you, you have this authority and just be like, bing, ba, boop, ba, boop. Look at me, I can do all this stuff. And then when it doesn't work, you, then why is it, why is it healing happening? They've been doing this for some time. It's recorded in Mark 9. They've been doing this for some time. And now they've hit a snag. And they're like, well, I don't understand. Their faith has been moved. They saw what they could do, and they kind of realized, hey, I can do this thing, so I'm just going to go do it. And they didn't appeal to Jesus at all. He said, oh, faithless generation, how long have you been with you? 
Like, why don't you realize this thing? This takes prayer. This takes submission to God. This takes the power and might of God to do, to which you needed to believe it could be done in the first place, if you can. That's the good doubt. Good doubt seeks God to bring light to the areas of our lives that present gaps in our faith for a more fuller faith and wisdom. Love is the basis of good doubt for Sophia. This is the prayer of someone with good doubt. Lord, help me to understand the good in this season of my life. Show me your glory that I might fully understand your power and mind in the gap of my unbelief. Because things don't seem very good right now. The situation in my life is not very good right now. If you can, help my unbelief. Because I do believe. Help my unbelief. That is good doubt. Now bad doubt. What is bad doubt? Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. The crucifixion of Jesus. We're going to see some intriguing uh, situations going on here this last bit. Matthew 27, starting in verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross, being Jesus' cross. And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, and when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had sacrificed or crucified, crucified, there we go, him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Isn't that intriguing? Then they sat down and kept watch over him. Now that dividing his garments is should be read as more along the lines of they did not know what to think about it. So they kind of just let chance happen. They divided his clothing among them to sell them or to take them. But if you read this in a kind of a place of faith, I don't really know what to do with all this stuff about Jesus. So my casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. The two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. you see that imagery again? This division? One on the left, one on the right. And saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Cool. That seems a little different of a question than the Father had. Oh, Son of God, are you? Tear down the temple and build it up? Get yourself continuing on. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. Oh, oh. Do it this way or else. You are either the son of God if you save yourself or you're not if you don't. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. Oh my gosh. If he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. 
The scoffers are defining it, are defining as judges what would satisfy them as proof of Jesus as Messiah and King. They said, if you are who you say you are, do it my way. Prove yourself. Come down from there, and then you are. If you are, mockery is demonstrated in such doubting. If God is real, then he needs to blank for me to believe. Yeah, right. It would take Jesus himself to show up before I believe such a thing. Isn't it funny that the same type of argument you receive from individuals is the same argument that was given to the rich man with Lazarus. Lazarus said, hey, have him go and tell, have my brothers go and tell them that this has happened to me. And Jesus, or the, in the parable, Jesus says, if somebody even raises from the dead and goes and tells them, they will not believe. Yeah, right. It would take Jesus, it would take Jesus himself to show up before I believe such a thing. Your faith is just a crutch. If God did exist, it would take blank for me to be convinced. I need proof, scientific proof, empirical proof. Is there faith in that at all? No. If God walked up to you and be like, Hello, my name is Jesus, here's the holes in all nine yards. Now you can believe in me? Oh yeah, for sure. Because <laughs> you're standing right in front of me. There are so many that you will encounter on a day-to-day -day basis that will say, if God does it this way, then I'll believe. Or, why is there so much suffering in this world if God is loving, if God is this, if God is that? That's bad doubting. That's someone who's diacrino. If God doesn't do things my way, he doesn't exist. He has to prove himself to me, or he doesn't exist. He is either innocent or guilty, based on my judgment. Bad doubt seeks to, uh, for God to prove himself to the doubter. As one who judges before belief is possible. The sentiment of a bad doubter is one who says, God, do this in my life, and then I will believe. Otherwise, you are not real. But what we see is something different with John. We see something absolutely different than John. Because did he ask Jesus of anything? He didn't ask him anything. All he asked was a little bit of assurance that Jesus is who he says he is. He didn't ask anything of Jesus. So we're going to find this out. So let's dive into the text. Doubt within faith and trial. Doubts within faith and trial. We find this in uh, verses 18 through 20. 18, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent to them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us. So, I love that precursor that. They're like, look, we're not asking. John is. John the Baptist has sent us, saying, Are you the one to come, or well, shall we look for another? John is currently sitting in prison. He's heard about these situations. He's heard about what Jesus is doing. And rather than obviously rejoice in the fact that the kingdom of God is here, and that the one to whom which promise is walking now among us, healing and doing these wonderful works, he's like, oh, well, what does that say about me, though? What's going on with like, am I going to get released too? Is like this, is this a good, something I can expect? Or am I going to be facing death? 
John is currently sitting in prison awaiting the verdict regarding his sentencing for going face to face with Herod regarding his sin. And that's found in Mark 6, uh, 14 through 29. Details the account of what John actually, what happens to John the Baptist. He went to a king and said, hey, you can't have your brother's wife. And Herod's like, bro, I can have whatever I want. And he kills John, just like that. Just like John was nothing. It was a prize at the head of John. It's a terrible thing that happened to John. But notice what John is seeking here. He's not asking to be let out of prison. He didn't ask Jesus, hey, when is it my turn? Bro, when do I get to experience some of this stuff? When do I get the deliverance and all that? He didn't ask that. John was about to lose his life and needed assurance of hope to face death. He was in the midst of getting ready to face it, and he needed some assurance. Like, look, I'm probably not going to make it through this thing. I need to know. Can you just, be, can you just at least bless me with that so that I can face death at all? John, being filled with the Spirit before birth, had a moment of weakened faith when facing death. It's interesting what the flesh will do to you whenever the flesh is threatened. Every time the Lord works in your life, to remove sin from your life, your flesh hates it. And it will fight all the more. It will fight your mind. It will seek the appeal for your heart to draw you down to destruction. That's where John was at. But his spirit was not moved. He just needed a bit of assurance. He was set in his resolve. He knew where he was at. He just needed a, a sweet voice of his Messiah saying, yes, you can endure this stuff. Which is the next portion. Is what, what was Jesus' response to John's situation? Doubts define meaning. Doubts define meaning. Your doubts define meaning. This comes from verses 21 through 23. Verses 21 through 23. In that hour, this is Jesus, mind you, in that hour, meaning immediately, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended. By me. Not offended by me. So as opposed to giving John a downright answer and saying, be like, hey, don't tell anybody, but yeah, I'm, I'm the Messiah. Go tell John. He didn't do that. He said, watch what's going to happen. And he immediately goes on to do works. Works, 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 works. And you find that kind of funny. But is not the works of more proof and faithfulness than somebody's word? Because what if, what if the disciples, just seeking to appeal to John and help the situation, said, oh yeah, bro, he's the, he's the one, man. So Jesus ensures the disciples get a taste of his glory before he can go and tell John what's going to happen. John doesn't need simply a yes or no answer. 
He needs to see the glory of God before he faces his own death. The catalyst of John's question was one of revelation, not judgment. He wasn't trying to determine whether or not Christ is the Messiah. He was one, he needed, to, he needed assurance saying, oh man, I am weak in my faith and now I believe, help my unbelief. And Christ reveals himself in a powerful way. Listen to the account of the situation found in Matthew. This is Matthew's account of this very same thing. And I like how Matthew does it because Luke demonstrates the actions of God. Matthew tells the fulfillment of the scriptures of God and his account. Both of them were powerful together. When Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when, Jesus, or when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples. Here we go. And he said to him, Are you the one who is to come, and shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. Here we go. Same thing. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? So very similar as Luke. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet. This is he whom it is said, Behold, I, am, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare the way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater. So we'll stop right there. It's very, very similar, except in Luke's account, we see the actual actions of God. We were told that immediately he went and healed all these things. Matthew, writing to Israeli or uh, uh, Judea, Jewish folks, has a certain thing in mind when he wrote what he wrote. He chose to use a, a portion of prophecy to demonstrate the fulfillment of Jesus. And this is found in two places primarily. One is Isaiah 35. Listen to the language of Isaiah 35. Starting in verse 1. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. Where did John come from? Where did he come from? Where was he at before his ministry began? He was in the wilderness. And the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the caucus. Crocus. <coughs> It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy in singing. Who is being talked to here? The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Verse 3. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Matthew chooses to showcase a prophecy in the Old Testament to this very situation regarding John. Listen to what, verse 5, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, and with the recompense of God, He will come and save you. What type of assurance do you think John got? 
When Jesus sat there and said, the lame walk, the blind have sight, the deaf hear, the lepers are cleansed. Continuing on. Then the eyes of the blind, verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then uh, shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there. What was John called to do? To prepare a way. From where? The wilderness. What did Jesus just do? What did Jesus just do? Heal the blind, sick, plain, leper, deaf. He says, hear and see what you, go tell him what you hear and see. Because John knows exactly what this is. And a highway shall be there, and that shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. There's that moment of doubting. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. Where is John at right now? There's no trampling this way. Verse 10. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. What did Jesus just tell John? You're coming home with me, bro. Come home with me. Here's the assurance you have. A wilderness. You will not be dry. You will well up the springs of water and sing praises of joy. And when he comes, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the lamb will walk, the lepers will be praised. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. John, here's your assurance, man. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. What type of encouragement do you think John had upon hearing that? But it also comes out of Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, starting in verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has appointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison for those who are bound. What a beautiful word he just got. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of your God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. What an encouraging word John has got. Not only did he get to hear the actual things that were really happening, but the way that Jesus said the things, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the lame will walk, the leper will be cleansed, and rejoice because I preach the good news to the poor. Those very things should trigger in John's mind. 
Not only is Jesus talking to John specifically regarding the wilderness in Isaiah 35, but he's also letting him know that joy and gladness will be upon his head regardless of what happens to him. Regardless of what he's going to experience, regardless of what he's going to go through, he will be secured for eternity. Oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting oil, that he may be glorified. John, be encouraged. Luke's account demonstrates the works of God to the fulfillment of the scriptures. Matthew points us to the scriptures that were being fulfilled. It is a testimony to John in the midst of his own doubt. So the Lord responded. He sought the Lord, and the Lord responded. Next, the affirmation from Jesus. He didn't just simply give him some beautiful Old Testament prophecy. He speaks well of John. We find this in verses 24 through 28. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? There it is. A reed shaken by the wind. When John's messenger, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. Like, so you didn't obviously go out to see John because he dressed well. So what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I'll tell you, more than a prophet. Jesus is affirming John very well. He's not rebuking John for having this question. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Did Jesus rebuke John in the midst of his sorrow? In the midst of his own weakness of faith? Did Jesus look at, him, look at his disciples and You tell that weak man to grow a spine. Tell him not to doubt. How many times have you heard that? Whenever you're like, I don't know, I'm going through a really rough season right now. You're not supposed to doubt. How many times have you been rebuked by others whenever you have a moment of weakness in your faith? Whenever you had questions. Did Jesus just do that to John? Absolutely not. He assured him. He comforted him. And then he affirmed him to everybody else. Hey, don't think it that just because John the Baptist has a moment of weakness that you can sit there and find a reason to doubt him. Or that you can sit there and find a reason to discredit him. Because none greater was born of a woman than John. But he was in the least of the kingdom of heaven. He'll be greater than he. Jesus affirms John in this moment to help build him up, to give him exactly what he needed because he sought the Lord earnestly in this moment of weakness. And then he went ahead and affirmed to everyone else regarding John that just because he had a moment where he needed a little bit of assurance, a moment where he was facing death and asked a question that everybody else could not use as, as a measure towards seeing him in a negative light. Oh, John the Baptist is doubting Weak in faith. 
That's how we are not to treat our brothers and sisters. Jesus affirms him right out of the get-go. Jesus does not rebuke John, but confirms him for assurance of hope and affirms John in his own faith. He reminds John is exactly of what he was called to do, that the Lord himself gave him that mission. Remember, John, what God calls you to do to prepare the way for me? Remember, John. But lastly, Jesus does something interesting. He doesn't stop there. He gives a call to action. Because he's addressing the crowd right now. The disciples of John are nearby listening to what Jesus has to say. But Jesus is addressing the crowd right now regarding this situation. So he has a call to action. This is verses 29 through 35. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. So just out of the get-go, that alone is hilarious because they're like, oh, I'll baptize by John. Oh, you too? Sweet. This dude is top-notch. There's none greater than John. We got baptized by him. Hoorah. Yeah. This is the best. And look, what, look how they respond to the scribes. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. They're like... No, I don't think so. I mean, whatever, he's not great. But they weren't baptized by John. Continuing on. So what then shall I compare the people of this generation? Oh, now he's turned from addressing John to addressing the crowd. To what then shall I compare this people of, of this generation? And what are they like? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang in church. Uh, if somebody knows how to properly pronounce that, you can let me know afterwards. Because I. All right, excellent. And you did not weep. So, what is Jesus saying here? Jesus, you didn't dance for us like we wanted you to. We played this song for you and you didn't dance. Jesus, we played this dirge and you did not weep. Therefore, therefore, you can't be the guy. You didn't do things the way that we thought you would. We didn't do, you didn't do things the, thing, the way that we think you should. Verse 33, for John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he's a demon. <laughs> You're like, okay, there's that, that divided mind again. They justified John the Baptist's dealings as being a demon because he drank no wine and ate no bread. And then looked at how they dealt with Jesus. For the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. What an intriguing thing to say to everybody. Jesus looks at people in the crowd and says, you're like children in a marketplace, singing, dancing. You're wanting me to dance. You're wanting me to weep. And if I don't, you cast me aside. Friend of tax collectors and sinners, a drunkard and glutton, just because I didn't do things your way. Therefore, I'm not anything to you. But this is the closing argument that Jesus makes at the very end. And this is the call to action. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. 
What is Jesus saying here? Wisdom, Sophia, is justified by all her children. Where does this phrase come from? Proverbs 8. Proverbs 8, starting in verse 1. Listen to what the scripture says about wisdom. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portal, she cries aloud, Who is doing this? Who is wisdom? Can you guys put the pieces together? Who's wisdom in this situation? Who's the one calling? Who's the one declaring? Who's the one at the gates? Who's the one in the towns? Christ is. But, this is a parable. Or imagery about wisdom. Beside the gates, in front of the town, in the entrance of the portal, she cries aloud, To you, O man, I call, and my cries to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. That means discipline on a resolved issue. O fools, loose, learn sense. Hear, for I speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. For my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are, uh, they are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. Prudence is the discipline of oneself for the use of reason. Wisdom is found in whom? What is Jesus saying here? What did he just demonstrate? He proved to everyone that he is the one calling. That he is the one who beckons at those who call. And those who find and hear his words of righteousness come. And he bears witness to them. He heals the blind, the, the deaf the sick, the leper. He's the one calling. They're missing it. And why are they missing it? Christ, who just demonstrated it before everyone, especially for John's disciples, they bear witness to him, to John. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 16. Why? Why are they missing it? Why are they missing it? And when I came to you, brothers, this is Paul writing to the church of Corinth, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. That word there is uh, sophos, sophisticated, clever words. He wasn't trying to convince anybody of anything. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not to implausible words of wisdom, but a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. What just happened in Luke? Where was John's assurance placed? In the power of God. Jesus just demonstrated to everybody the fulfillment of Isaiah 35 and 61. And most argue Isaiah 32 also in this one instance. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. 
But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. If they but understood the things that were already written about him, they wouldn't have done it. But why? Why did they miss it? But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ears heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For those uh, for who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit, so that the person which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of this world, but the Spirit of who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, Sophos again. Go, to, go ahead and go to verse 16. For who, has, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him that we have the mind of Christ? The evidence of wisdom and faith is found in the word of God, and proof of that wisdom is Christ. We saw it, both Luke and Matthew demonstrated. This is the very thing that John the Baptist himself needed. He knew the scriptures, but he needed to know with full assurance that he could abide by them. So Christ obliged and confirmed and affirmed John the Baptist in this moment. Doubt that drives you further into Christ is a doubt that is designed for you, building you up in faith. More wisdom, Sophia, from the one, from the one to whom wisdom flows generously, to those who seek will produce treasures more valuable than jewels. This is James 1.5 and Proverbs 8.11. Doubt that drives you to place God on trial and the need for God to prove himself through your own judgment will leave you empty, receiving nothing. That is what James was talking about. If you seek to place God on trial and say, prove yourself, you're not going to get anything. But if you come approaching God saying, I believe, tell my unbelief, he'll pour it out to you generously. So here's what we're going to ask in closing. This is what we're going to ask in closing. What do we do when doubt knocks upon our hearts? What do we do? Okay, Freddie? We saw a bunch of stuff. What do we do about it? Number one, see God. John, the first place he went to was Jesus himself. And the confirmation that John got was in the scriptures itself. But he also proved it in the works that he done. James 1.5 says to ask for wisdom and God will give it generously to you. Jesus describes this type of good doubt and seeking God in two parables. Very short. Matthew 13, 44-46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Verse 46. Who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Who is the pearl of great price? Yeah. Seek God. 
When doubt hits your heart, first run to the one to whom you need to inquire to. Run to the one to whom you find your faith in. Run to the one to whom can give you a solid, assuring, foundational answer. It'll either be done through the word of God to demonstrate his faithfulness or the works of God as he works in your life. Seek God, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Remember, wisdom is described as more valuable than jewels. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 9-13, through 13, we won't go through that. We just read that here a moment ago. But listen, listen to the very end of the call in Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 2, listen to the call of seeking God in the midst of our struggle, in the midst of our troubles and trials. Then the Spirit and the Bride, that's the Holy Spirit in the church, mind you, say, Come. And let the one who says, Say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Are you thirsty for more of God? Do you hunger for more understanding of who He is? Do you need more assurance to be built up so that way you are not thirsty anymore? Come. Come. Proverbs 8, 17-21. Listen to how this chapter kind of closes out regarding wisdom. I love those who love me. And those who seek me diligently find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me, and filling their treasures. Seek God. Are you lacking in any way? Do you need assurance of any way? Seek God. Is there a hunger and thirst for more? Seek Him. Have you given all that you possibly have? Worth more than fine gold and jewels. Number two, you need to surround yourself with the body of Christ. You need to surround yourself with the body of Christ. First, seek God, next, surround yourself with the body of Christ. Hebrews uh, chapter 10. Verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, that's you, saints, by the new and living way that he opened for us, or yeah, for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, with full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast, there it is, the confession of our hope without wavering. There's that word again. Diacrino. Let us hold fast the confession without wavering. For he who has promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Not neglect, neglecting to meet together, as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. The word there is octrino, means without judgment. Without judgment. There's no diacrino in this particular situation because you're not trying to divide, you're not trying to cause judgment in this situation because you're now without it. You're ocrino. 
You're without judgment because your assurance, confidence in the faith. How? By not neglecting. How are we supposed to be built up? How are we supposed to have this assurance? By not neglecting to meet with one another so as to be stirred up in work and good love. I'm sorry. Love and good works. Testimony is necessary for blessing to others because it is through testing that witness, which is the Latin word testis, where we get the word testimony, because it is through testing that witness, testis, is made possible. Someone who has been there could be sitting right next to you. So you're not alone. You don't just seek God on your own. Notice who John had with him. His disciples. So they were able to bear witness for him. Sometimes your brother and your sister in Christ sitting close to you may need to remind you of those things. May need to give a testimony to you of how God worked. John's disciples did. They beheld it all. And they went and told John to build him up in faith. So be mindful. Be prayerful. Be considerate. And meet together. Whenever doubt comes upon your heart. And lastly, number three, know. Yada, the Hebrew word, know. Really know. Not know. Know. The word of God. The word of God. John knew it. And Jesus used it to confirm and affirm it. You got to know it. Listen to the words of uh, Elihu to Job. When Job was in the midst of his off and on, back and forth, mad at God, not mad at God. If you haven't read Job, I highly recommend it. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. Listen to Elihu as he is giving counsel to Job. At this also my heart trembles. He's talking about the voice of God, mind you. At this also my heart trembles and leaps out of its place. Keep listening to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. Don't stop. Under the whole heaven, he lets it go, and his lightning to the corners of the earth. After it, his voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice, and he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise, to the downpour, or to the downpour, his mighty downpour. He seals up the hand of every man that all men whom he made may know it. Then the beasts go into their lairs and remain in their dens. He's given an account of the faithfulness of God and within nature. From its chamber comes the whirlwind and cold from the scattering winds. By the breath of God, ice is given and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture, the clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the, on the, of the habitable world. Whether for correction, or for his land, or for love, he causes it to happen. Verse 14. Hear this, O Job. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Elihu went on a rant, kind of a praise, really, of the wonderful works of God. And then in that moment, he had to look and be like, don't you see? Job, just stop for a moment and behold it. Just for a moment. Just stop and behold it. 
In closing, I want to go through a very familiar story. A very familiar story on why it is that we need to know Yadal, the Word of God, for the sake of our assurance to be built up in faith and have a strong foundation so that when doubt comes our way, we can continue to stand and we can stop and consider the wondrous works of God. In closing, Luke 24, starting in verse 13. For that very day, two of them, this is the road to Emmaus story. That very day, we're going to the village. Actually, just for time's sake, because I'm already run over, uh, let's sum it up. I'm going to give you the summation of it. So read through, okay? Two men were walking along the side of the road. Jesus walks beside them, and they didn't know it was Jesus at the time. And the two men were discussing some things. Their hearts were downcast because of what had happened to Jesus. And Jesus asked them, why are your hearts downcast? They said, well, have you not heard about this thing? And then they took him and they, they, they killed him and then they buried him and then his body disappeared. They don't know what he did with his body. And then Jesus reveals to them all of the scriptures. It goes through it. He goes and sits down with them and has a meal with them. They still don't recognize that it's Jesus until he breaks the bread with them in fellowship. Then they realize, and then he just disappears. And the biggest question out of this entire situation was this. Did not our hearts burn within us when he revealed to us the scriptures? That moment when things start clicking, they're unshakable. When you don't understand something about God, and He shows it to you, you'll never forget that. You come up to a moment of suffering in your life, you're like, Lord, show me your glory and suffering. Where is it? I did. And I read quite a bit, because I needed to. But now I can tell you what suffering is, and why, and how to stand upon it, and how to continue in it. With the full assurance of faith. Because he's the one who holds me fast. Out of all of this, none of this tells you that you are supposed to stand for yourself. That you're supposed to be built up in yourself. That you're supposed to build a house for yourself. That you're supposed to do all these things on your own using clever words, soft boss, and being wise. No. Faith. In those moments when your faith is shaking a little bit, go to the one who gave it to you. And say, I'm lacking here. Can you fill me up? He will hold you fast. He's faithful and just to meet you right where you're at. So in closing, this is the question. This is the resounding question I want us to lay upon our hearts. Do you wonder if he is the one in whom redemption is found? Look. And behold his faithfulness in fulfilling all the promises of God and the wondrous works that proves he is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us in our unbelief. In those moments of weakness, whenever we don't feel it, in those moments of weakness when we do not understand, whenever we walk in a way that seems to stumble at us, and when our faith is weak and we seek to come to you with questions, Lord, Hold us fast. Let us observe your glory in your word. Let us see the wonderful works to which you are doing. 
Open up our eyes and let our ears be opened. Let us not be deaf in those moments. Let us not be blind in those moments that we need to see. And Lord, do your wonderful work and open our eyes to your glory. Build us up when we doubt. Help us in our unbelief. Because we do believe. We just need a little assurance. A little affirmation. For you are good and faithful. And you will always hold us fast.